Hello everyone, this is Jorge Fascinetti, and you're listening to another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. Dr. Louis Blevins and I are very pleased to announce a new Pituitary World News section directed to physicians and healthcare professionals. In it, Dr. Blevins and his colleagues will discuss case studies and critical information on pituitary disease. We begin our section with this interesting podcast based on 10 Cushing's patients. Hello everyone, this is Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News podcasting to you today from the Bay Area in Northern California. We have had probably 27 to 30 patients with Cushing's syndrome or disease uh, with uh, documented illness or being evaluated for such over the past three weeks or so, uh, including 18 patients with the disorder in one particular week. Uh, As expected, just a a wealth of information and plenty of great teaching points across this distribution of our patients. I would like to share some of these interesting patients with you uh, so that you can gain a perspective on the disease that you might not have, depending on your level of experience with this particular disorder. As usual, we protect the health information of the patients. I may change age, sex, or something like that, so that patients aren't recognized given that so many are active on social media. So sit back and relax, uh, get comfortable, grab your favorite beverage and listen in as we take you on this journey through the California Center for Pituitary Disorders at UCSF as it pertains to our recent experience in patients with hypercortisolism. First is a 39-year-old gentleman who was diagnosed with hypercortisolism in 2017. He had gained 10 pounds, developed abdominal bloating, had stretch marks, plethora, a round face, lethargy, diminished libido, headache, and by history had proximal uh, muscle weakness and had um, hypertension with also what was thought to be glucose intolerance, but actually meets the criteria for mild diabetes mellitus. An investigation was done, and I don't have the results, but he was said to be frankly hypercortisolemic with an elevated ACTH level. An MRI showed a three millimeter uh, area of decreased contrast enhancement in the left pituitary gland, thought to be a microadenoma. Because of the uncertainty of the diagnosis, which frankly I don't understand, Uh, He was treated with ketoconazole and had been on and off ketoconazole since 2017. Most recently, he had been on ketoconazole 200 milligram three times daily. However, he continued to gain weight and his Cushingoid symptomatology did not improve. Towards the end of 2020, he underwent a subsequent MRI study that confirmed the presence of a small hypoenhancing lesion in the left aspect of the gland that measured three to five millimeter. He had a urine cortisol, but again, I don't have those uh, results. He did have an AM cortisol that measured 49 and an ACTH that measured 111. His physician suggested IPSS and he was referred for further evaluation. 
I reviewed the MRI and he had a clear-cut uh, microadenoma in the left aspect of the gland. He certainly had ACTH-dependent hypercortisolism, had not responded very well to medical therapy. And my recommendation was that he see uh, one of our surgeons to consider transphenoidal resection of a presumed ACTH-secreting microadenoma. Now, I find this to be particularly interesting because he uh, first was not rec recommended to have surgery early on, and there was a lot of uncertainty in the diagnosis. However, there was enough certainty to treat him with ketoconazole, but there was not an intention to really truly treat because he never took doses high enough to normalize his cortisol excretion rates. I don't have an explanation for why uh, that uh, was the approach that was taken, but I firmly recommend that if you encounter such a patient that you refer to a center for guidance and expertise and uh, decisions about uh, appropriate treatment so that you can shorten the time of exposure to cortisol in patients who are affected by this horrible disease process. Our next patient is a fascinating 76-year-old woman. I first took care of her when I was a fellow at Hopkins in 1992 when she presented with weight gain and dyspepsia and was seen by a gastroenterology. Uh, the astute gastroenterologist who saw her thought that she had hypercortisolism and referred her to my endocrine fellows clinic. And she really didn't look classically Cushingoid, but there were a few features that uh, were suggestive of the disorder. Uh, including some profound hypertrichosis at the time. So I investigated her. Uh, her ACTH level was slightly elevated. Her urine cortisol was elevated at about 58 micrograms for 24 hours. So not really that significantly elevated, in fact, but certainly probably higher than her baseline should be. An MRI showed about a 5 millimeter lesion in the right aspect of the cella. We sent her to neurosurgery and they resected a histologically confirmed ACTH producing microadenoma of the gland. She had a period of postoperative adrenal insufficiency that lasted for well more than a year and then ultimately had returned to normal cortisol production rates. I followed her for a number of years after I had moved from Hopkins to Emory and she was uh, off steroids and in remission, doing well, had lost some weight, her dyspepsia had improved. She contacted me about four months ago, indicating that uh, her hypercortisolism had recurred. Uh, she had the classic symptoms and signs of hypercortisolism. Her urine cortisol measured 400 and her ACTH level was elevated. I got involved in her care, even though she lived across the country, and we arranged for an MRI that showed a recurrent tumor in the right inferior cella and uh, medial cavernous sinus and slightly inferior to the cavernous sinus. So clearly she had recurrent hypercortisolism 28 years after her original successful surgery. We believe this was the same tumor that uh, there was likely microscopic invasion and it just took that long for her disease to recur. Looking back over the past few years, she probably had symptoms of the recurrence starting a couple of years ago. We operated and uh, were able to resect all of her tumor. There's no tumor visible on uh, MRI uh, performed six weeks after surgery. We obviously confirmed uh, that it was a corticotroph adenoma. 
Her Chaos 67 labeling index was less than 1%, uh, confirming that this is a, a very slow-growing lesion. Certainly, at the time it was resected, a small proportion of cells were in the cell cycle uh, where they've either divided, uh, are dividing, or will divide soon. Her immediate post-operative cortisol was 3, and her ACTH was 15, suggesting to me that she might be in remission and in a majority, if not all, of her tumor was resected. Her six-week after surgery cortisol was 8.7, and her ACTH is 21.1. So what do you do with this information? I'm thinking that she's probably not rendered disease-free, but she has experienced dramatic improvement with a weight loss of 18 pounds in just six weeks. She's coming off antihypertensive medications, and she feels much better with less anxiety and less dyspepsia. But I don't think she has been rendered disease-free. The thing that I'm going to do next is to perform a 24-hour urine cortisol, and then I'll decide whether she needs additional treatment. We'll probably repeat her MRI in four to six months after surgery, and then consider whether or not she requires gamma knife radiosurgery if there's a target, for example, or conventional radiotherapy if there's no target. The goal of the radiotherapy would be to try to prevent further tumor progression. And then if we need to, we'll start her own medical therapy to treat hypercortisolism. Important patient, uh, it illustrates the fact that sometimes you can't really tell whether a patient's been rendered disease-free and entered remission uh, or has residual microscopic tumor. And it also illustrates that you can see recurrences many years after initial successful surgery. Prior to seeing this patient, the record, so to speak, of the longest time from initial diagnosis of Cushing's to, and successful surgery to recurrence was 14 years in my practice. So this is a, a unique uh, situation. I heard Jay Finling talk at the Endocrine Society recently. They'd had a couple patients who'd recurred 25 to, or more years after initial surgery. So while unusual, this does occasionally happen and patients should be informed that they need lifelong follow-up for hypercortisolism due to Cushing's disease. Next, I'd like to share with you the case of a 56-year-old woman who was referred for hypercortisolism. It's not clear to me at the moment uh, why she underwent testing, but ultimately she had urine cortisol that probably averaged about 120 micrograms for 24 hours over several different studies. Her ACTH levels were elevated, averaging about 80 to 85. She had mild hyperpigmentation but really no cushionoid features whatsoever, not a symptom or sign that you could imagine related to hypercortisolism. And on examination, there was nothing whatsoever that would make you think this patient had a single cell exposed to excess glucocorticoids. I didn't think she had Cushing's, but was a little suspicious about things because of those levels. Obviously she wasn't taking any steroids. If she had been, the ACTH would have been low. So I checked her salivary cortisol profile, and I did it on several occasions just to be certain as to whether it was going to be normal or abnormal. Just for those of you who don't know me, I, I don't just check midnight salivary cortisol levels. I check a profile where I want to see the cortisol levels uh, in the morning, in the afternoon, and also in the evening. So I want to see what that diurnal variation looks like. I don't want to rely just on cortisol at the time point 
of uh, 11 p.m. or whenever a patient's going to bed. So one of her particular profiles is worth studying. Uh, her morning salivary cortisols were 0.526 and 0.603. Her afternoon salivary cortisol levels were 0.130 and 0.080. And her bedtime salivary cortisol levels were 0.075 and 0.092. So this profile is normal. Uh, levels are highest in the morning, about half of that in the afternoon, and a tenth of the morning values or thereabouts uh, prior to bedtime. Overall, the levels are a little up, but the profile is normal. And I think this patient has glucocorticoid resistance. Uh, glucocorticoid resistance, as you know, is a syndrome where the uh, glucocorticoid receptor has a defect, and it could be with its DNA binding domain or the way the heat shock proteins work. Uh, there are several different theories and hypotheses and findings in this regard. But basically, patients have less glucocorticoid activity, so they ratchet up their uh, HPA axis. And that uh, seems to function fairly normally. Some of them get hypertension, and it seems to be a mineralocorticoid hypertension, probably due to cortisol uh, overwhelming the uh, cortisol-cortisone shuttle and increasing cortisol binding to the mineralocorticoid receptor. But most patients don't have any symptoms whatsoever of hypercortisolism, and I think that's the diagnosis for this particular patient. So keep this in mind when you see patients who have abnormal cortisol levels, but they don't look Cushingoid. Certainly you need to evaluate them for the possibility of pituitary disease, and this patient had an entirely normal MRI of the, of the cella. Uh, but uh, don't forget glucocorticoid resistance as you see your patients with hypercortisolism. The next patient is a 36-year-old woman who presented with amenorrhea, constipation, hair thinning, body composition changes, low bone density, acne, rounded face. Her primary care physician suspected hypercortisolism. A 24-hour urine cortisol excretion rate was 507. It was repeated and it was elevated at 478. She had two late-night salivary cortisol levels measuring 2.08 and 2.81 respectively. So those levels are both obviously higher than they should be at around 0.145 or 0.125 depending on the assay. Her ACTH levels were inappropriately normal measuring 30 on one occasion and 46 on another. She had an MRI of the pituitary gland that did not reveal a tumor according to the radiologist's report. A primary physician, an endocrinologist, and a neurosurgeon. She underwent inferior petrosal sinus sampling that confirmed a central source of ACTH secretion. Uh, her peripheral vein ACTH rose after CRH administration to 144. And uh, the central level, uh, the highest on the left, was 1,999. Uh, the right wasn't cannulized very easily, so there was no laterality uh, determined by that study. She underwent surgery, and the histopathology was negative and that there was no tumor resected. And after surgery, I had an opportunity to be consulted on this patient. I reviewed her initial MRI and saw a tumor tucked away on the left side 
of the uh, cella uh, adjacent to the cavernous sinus wall that uh, had previously been unrecognized. I recommended repeat surgery in attempt to try to get this lesion out and render her disease free. So she underwent a second operation about six weeks after the first, where the surgeon directed his attention to the abnormality on the MRI and was able to remove a histologically confirmed corticotroph adenoma. Unfortunately, however, the post-operative MRI showed a small amount of what I thought was residual tumor. So it looked like they were able to resect probably 70% of the anterior part of the lesion and just didn't dissect back far enough uh, on that particular side. Her post-operative serum cortisol was nine. Her post-operative ACTH was 30. So it appeared that she was not rendered disease-free as a consequence of surgery. And we were in the process of a usual post-operative evaluation and a determination as to whether to take her back for a third surgical procedure or to treat with radiotherapy and medical therapy. So I always like to know after people have had successful surgery, at least some tumor has been resected, what's the new set point? So I wanted to know what her 24 urine cortisol uh, excretion rate would be given that she'd had part of her tumor resected. So I looked at the 24 urine cortisol and the result was less than one. Didn't believe it, uh, checked her AM cortisol level and it had fallen to seven. I repeated her 24-hour urine cortisol and it measured 4.3. So clearly this patient, after her second surgical procedure, where only a portion of her tumor was resected, looked like she was going to require additional immediate treatment to try to render her disease free. But her levels fell afterwards. I've seen this several times and usually I interpret this to mean that the residual tumor uh, that obviously was partially resected, had its blood supply interrupted, and the remnant tumor probably being ischemic or hemorrhaging uh, stops ultimately or slows down making ACTH, and then the cortisol levels will ultimately fall. So I just saw her this week, and my recommendation now is that we, we treat her with dexamethasone 0.25 milligram at bedtime. She's not going to get cushion on that. That's a typical replacement dose in my practice and uh, I want to follow her over time. So we're going to look at urine cortisols, ACTH, and cortisol levels in the blood, probably at monthly intervals for the next few months to determine whether or not she's going to uh, have a further decline in these levels or whether they're going to start increasing through the normal range. I decided to treat her with dexamethasone just to be safe. Uh, it's not gonna hurt, it's not gonna add fuel to the fire, so to speak, because the fire is almost out. Her urine cortisol is between less than one and 4.3 are really not much of a problem. And I'd rather her be safe and protected in the event of illness, accident, injury, etc. So it's very interesting. And I think it uh, uh, speaks to the fact that these patients, even when they have small tumors can be very difficult to manage. And um, you have to stay in there and you have to work hard to try to get control gain control of the tumor, and then hopefully also you'll see the biochemical results that you desire. I think it also speaks to the fact that in pituitary medicine, you sometimes need to take a step back, do things in a logical, sequential manner to determine the actual needs of the patients. 
This case also illustrates another principle of mine that is in uh, difference with a lot of major medical centers who take patients back to surgery right away after they prove that they haven't successfully operated. Sometimes you have to let the dust settle, take a look at a good MRI, additional biochemical data, and then determine what to do. And waiting six weeks is not going to do anything but make things more clear than trying to operate in the first week after surgery. So that's uh, an important uh, teaching point with regards to this patient's history. Take your time, don't take shortcuts. If you take shortcuts, you're gonna have errors in diagnosis and in treatment. And that applies to uh, these patients in particular where they have extensive investigations and multimodal therapies uh, with uh, some of those treatments having important consequences for the patient. Next is a 68-year-old woman who, let's see, I think she's had five surgical procedures for Cushing's disease at different facilities all over the West Coast. Uh, she came to us in 2018 with recurrent tumor and hypercortisolism. We operated but were not able to resect all of the tumor present and uh, she ultimately received gamma knife radio surgery to the residual. She started out on a dose of ketoconazole of 100 milligram twice a day uh, and then had uh, a rise in her cortisol levels over time necessitating an increase to a total of about 400 milligrams a day. At the last visit uh, her cortisol level was well controlled and her AM cortisol was 1.0. Her 24-year cortisol was low normal so we lowered her dose to 100 milligram three times a day. This patient is not interested in adrenalectomy. While that would treat the hypercortisolism, it's doing nothing against the primary tumor. We've irradiated her and we could do adrenalectomy without Nelson syndrome probably uh, complicating her history uh, and future, but she um, doesn't want that procedure. She doesn't want to trade um, having to take ketoconazole for having to take dexamethasone or hydrocortisone and a mineralocorticoid. I think she's a wise person because her Cushing's has never uh, been so severe that she was uh, in arrears. And we'll continue to follow her and hopefully one day as a consequence of the radiotherapy, we'll be able to uh, discontinue ketoconazole. I suspect that her normal pituitary function, however, is gone and that she'll ultimately require uh, glucocorticoid supplementation, but if we continue with this path, at least we'll avoid mineralocorticoid uh, replacement and the uh, consequences of having primary adrenal insufficiency after surgery. I have a 49-year-old patient who's actually quite fun to take care of. She's very intelligent, and um, we've been able to help her a lot. She had surgery for Cushing's disease due to a macroadenoma in 2019 and then had radiotherapy in October 2019 for residual disease. She was treated with ketoconazole and we were able to normalize her urine cortisol excretion. Levels would come down to the 20s and then they would march up to the 40s and 50s and she felt miserable and looked terrible with regards to her appearance with uh, all the classic features of hypercortisolism and we would increase the dose of ketoconazole followed by 
success only to have that short-lived and ended up marching her ketoconazole doses up to over 1200 milligrams a day at one point. It seemed that every time her urine cortisol was in the 20s, she would start to feel better, then it would climb back to the 40s and she would be very unwell. And I was really worried about her over time and had considered uh, adrenalectomy, which she wasn't interested in. I thought about treating her with uh, Corlem, but she was on Eliquis and there's a drug interaction there, so we couldn't use that. And I transitioned her to Isteresa. We treated her with two milligram twice a day and uh, after discontinuing the ketoconazole, obviously, and we were able to see her urine cortisol drop to 28.8. Uh, that was followed by her feeling markedly better uh, for a short period of time. We continued treatment and repeated her urine cortisol a few months later, and it measured 20.2. And after just about four to five months of therapy, she had a dramatic improvement. Her cushingoid features started to resolve. I could tell that her cognitive functions were improved. The plethora was basically gone. She had a smile on her face and uh, started losing weight. Has not had any complications of therapy, but has just this remarkable improvement in her overall sense of well-being. I think this case illustrates the fact that if one drug's not working, try another. And fortunately, in this day and age, we're starting to get back some drugs to treat hypercortisolism. When I was a fellow at Hopkins, we had a number of different agents. I used mitotain a couple times. We had metirapone, aminoglutethamide, ketoconazole. Uh, those were all great drugs. We would use Atomidate in patients who were sick in the ICU. Uh, metirapone ultimately became more difficult to get. Aminoglutethamide was no longer manufactured. Ketoconazole got the black box warning regarding hepatotoxicity. And now we have a, um, a somatostatin analog and Isteresa and other drugs on the way. Uh, so it's a, it's a nice time to be practicing pituitary endocrinology with more options uh, coming uh, into the realm of our uh, clinical utility of these drugs. But I, I think that she also illustrates the case that you have to keep working. You can't tell the patient your cortisol level is normal. You have to find what their normal is. Remember the concept of a normal range uh, is uh, the mean plus 1.96 standard deviations of the population. Uh, and all of us probably have our own little set points for cortisol excretion rates. So if we checked our cortisol levels 10 times, we'd probably see that the statistics, they would cluster at whatever is normal for our physiology. Maybe some of us are at 20, others at 15, some are at 40, some are at 35, what have you. Uh, but clearly this patient was telling me through her history and physical examination that a normal urine cortisol in the 40s was too much for her physiology. I have since learned that she does extremely well when she's around 20 with no symptoms of adrenal insufficiency and improvement and resolution of her Cushingoid features. So continue to work. And, and this, this whole notion of what normal applies to all patients with pituitary disorders, uh, looking at free T4 levels for uh, thyroxine supplementation, uh, looking at uh, IGF-1 levels for growth hormone replacement or figuring out where they should be with a history of acromegaly. So keep that concept in mind and I think that you'll find you can fine-tune the care of your patients and improve their sense of well-being if you keep trying to explore what's best for them and don't just accept a normal test result. 
The next patient with Cushing's is a 64-year-old woman who was diagnosed with a pituitary adenoma and hypercortisolism in 2020. She underwent surgery but was not rendered disease-free. She received gamma knife radiosurgery about two months after surgery was completed. And her urine cortisol levels, which were about 200 prior to surgery, were now around 50. Uh, her symptoms and signs had improved, but clearly she had ongoing symptoms and signs of Cushing syndrome. Uh, she had uh, loss of muscle strength, so her myopathy wasn't improving. Uh, she had a poor sense of well-being and had continued uh, to have a weight that was not satisfying to her. Uh, we discussed the different treatment options with her, and she wanted to go on medical therapy, so we started Isteresa, 2 milligram, twice daily, and lowered her urine cortisol levels to normal, to, I should say, to right where I like to see them, close to 20. Uh, she's had several urine cortisols on treatment and uh, is doing well with uh, levels of 16, 16, and, uh, and I think 19 was another one. Uh, so I'm very happy with her treatment and will continue therapy uh, until she no longer needs it. One of the things that I've learned about patients with Cushing's when they're on medical therapy is that you'll get a sense over time of what their 24-hour urine cortisols will be on treatment. And if they've received radiotherapy, ultimately their ACTH levels will fall and cortisol production will also fall to some extent. So you'll see those cortisol levels start to drop. That's when it's time to consider discontinuing or having the dose of the medication and reevaluating to see whether they still have an ongoing need for treatment. Usually I'll discontinue and then reassess the urine cortisol anywhere between four to six weeks after doing so. Um, the patients will let you know if, if their cortisol levels go back up, they'll usually have trouble with sleep and they seem to, seem to feel uh, that uh, something's not right. And you can check a urine cortisol at that time. Keep in mind that whether a patient has residual disease or recurrent disease or disease that's undergoing treatment, they're secreting cortisol erratically throughout the 24-hour period, and it's not in a normal diurnal variation. So they will tell you that they have insomnia. It's one of the more common symptoms that you'll see, especially in patients who have an early recurrence or, or even a late recurrence after successful treatment. Insomnia is one of the most sensitive early indicators that something is amiss and the patient uh, deserves further investigation. Many patients will also report some weight gain uh, and, in, and a slight increase in their appetite as early signs of recurrence. So keep an eye out for those symptoms and signs in your patients with a history of hypercortisolism who have had what looks like successful treatment. Next is a 59-year-old woman who underwent surgery at another institution in 2013 for Cushing's disease. At least all the biochemistry was suggestive thereof. Uh, they um, did a hemihypophysectomy because they couldn't identify tumor either on MRI or at the time of surgery. They must have had IPSS, but I don't have the record, so I don't know for sure. Uh, she had a persistent elevation in cortisol after surgery, so two days later, they did a re-exploration, and I think they did a total hypophysectomy, but I'm not clear on that. Uh, she had panhypopituitarism, but had persistent Cushing's disease. And as a result of that, uh, she underwent a laparoscopic adrenalectomy uh, a short period of time thereafter, and has had post-operative adrenal insufficiency as a result the entire time. 
Her ACTH levels rose from the 100s to about 608. That prompted performance of an MRI uh, in 2021 that illustrated a four millimeter pituitary lesion. So finally her tumor had declared itself. Many of us refer to this as Nelson syndrome, but it's not entirely what Don Nelson, Nelson at the University of Utah presented many years ago where patients actually have a macroadenoma uh, that's explosive in its growth with a visual field compromise and severe hyperpigmentation. There's sort of maybe mini Nelson syndrome or whatever you want to call it. The pathophysiology is the same. Uh, she had adrenalectomy. Uh, and then a pituitary tumor declared itself due to the lack of negative feedback and ultimately uh, presented itself at the microadenoma stage. Now, if it had been a macroadenoma, we probably would have called it Nelson's, but it is what it is, but uh, terminology is one thing and reality is another. So at any rate, uh, we removed her tumor. It confirmed, histopathology confirmed an ACTH-producing pituitary adenoma. And her initial ACTH level after surgery was 118. My plan from this point forward is to follow her ACTH level and her MRI. The postoperative MRI is clear with no residual tumor. Her ACTH level remains elevated. Immediately after surgery, it was 118. A couple of months after surgery, it was 306. Again, no tumor seen on MRI. This elevation is either due to subradiographic, it's a term that we like to use, pituitary adenoma that's invasive that was not resected, or it's ACTH secretion by the residual normal pituitary. Now, I told you she didn't have a pituitary, so it's probably tumor. Uh, but the point I want to make is that in patients who have adrenalectomy, even though we give traditional steroid supplementation and patients feel perfectly well with no symptoms of cortisol deficiency, and no symptoms of glucocorticoid excess, ACTH levels are usually elevated. When I was at Hopkins, we did studies on patients with adrenomyeluneuropathy who had primary adrenal insufficiency and showed that even though you have appropriate mineralocorticoid and glucocorticoid supplementation with normal examination, many patients have marked elevations in ACTH. And this is just due to the fact that our current hormone replacements are nowhere near close to perfect uh, and remember the hypothalamus and the pituitary is seeing minute to minute or second to second uh, levels of cortisol and adjusting uh, their uh, activation of the axis or suppression of the axis based on those minute to minute cortisol determinations and the diurnal variation, etc. So you're always going to see high ACTH levels in your patients with adrenal insufficiency unless you overtreat them. And that's the only time that I see patients with adrenal insufficiency have suppressed ACTH levels if they're on too much glucocorticoid hormone. The point here is that sometimes you have to look at the whole picture to try to interpret the test result. And to me, the high ACTH is probably due to residual tumor because she has no pituitary gland whatsoever. So we will follow her closely and uh, uh, then possibly irradiate anything that uh, starts to recur before it becomes a problem, because obviously a repeat surgical procedure may not render her disease free. Next is a 31-year-old woman who presented with headaches and galactorrhea. She was evaluated and found to have modest hyperprolactinemia with a prolactin of 48.2. She had an MRI of the pituitary that showed a macroadenoma with supracellar extension. It was thought that she had a non-functioning pituitary adenoma with stalk and, uh, interference hyperprolactinemia. 
she went to surgery. Um, I didn't get to see her beforehand and uh, was evaluated uh, postoperatively because she missed her dose of dexamethasone. We treat everybody with supplemental dexamethasone just in case their pituitary function is disrupted. Um, there's a lot of controversy on this topic. Some physicians don't give dexamethasone unless the patient declares themselves as adrenally insufficient. We tend to like to cover everyone because the surgeons had tools in there, mucked around in the pituitary gland, and you don't know who's had vascular disruption. It may take a while for the hypercortisolism to develop. Uh, due to regional changes in blood flow, uh, you might have temporary adrenal insufficiency that gets better uh, as healing takes place. And I would rather my patients go out of the hospital with a safety net of a dose of dexamethasone that's not going to suppress the HPA axis and not cause any side effects. At any rate, this patient was given traditional dexamethasone after surgery like all our patients. She missed a dose and she developed severe uh, symptoms suggestive of adrenal insufficiency. Uh, so I got involved in her care in the post-operative period, as I would have anyways. Uh, it turns out that she had a number of features of hypercortisolism before surgery, including acne, easy bruising, weight gain, and difficulty losing weight. Uh, she didn't have any hypertension or diabetes, but had a recent episode of depression. Um, I looked at her pathology, and it showed she had a corticotroph uh, adenoma. And postoperatively, her ACTH was 6 and her cortisol was 3. Other pituitary functions were entirely normal. So this is a patient who had hypercortisolism prior to surgery, didn't look very cushiony, though she had a history suggestive thereof, went to surgery and had postoperative adrenal insufficiency. And then the pathology confirms what you see, the, the corticotroph adenoma. She probably had significant hypercortisolism, otherwise her ACTH and cortisol wouldn't be suppressed. Of course, it would be unusual to see central adrenal insufficiency alone without other pituitary dysfunctions. So that really confirms that she had a pituitary adenoma that was producing ACTH, driving cortisol production that was suppressing normal corticotrophs and uh, therefore the picture is now much more clear than it was prior. So I'm treating her as a patient with uh, probable active hypercortisolism due to Cushing's disease, who now appears to be in remission, but we will follow closely because she did have a macroadenoma, and the likelihood of recurrence in patients with macroadenomas is about 35% in most good series. So she requires long-term follow-up for this particular situation and uh, ongoing steroid supplementations with periodic assessments to determine whether she's going to have recurrence and, and to determine when she can come off of her steroid supplementation. Next, I believe, is the 10th uh, patient I'll share with you. And it'll be the last one. Uh, the other patients are just as interesting, uh, but they repeat some of the same principles that I've discussed already. This one's rather curious. It's a woman in her 60s who um, presented to me for evaluation of what was thought to be an arachnoid cyst. And when I looked at her MRI, she had an enlarged cella that was largely empty. The pituitary infundibulum was deviated a little bit towards the right. And on the left, in what looked like might be a little bit of enhancing pituitary tissue, was a hypoenhancing lesion. My hypothesis at the time was that she probably had a pituitary adenoma at some point that infarcted and she was left with a large cella that was largely empty. 
So I started questioning her, and she says, well, come to think of it, now that you mentioned, I probably remember being told that I had a pituitary tumor at some point, but they didn't do anything but watch it. And I think that she had forgotten that history because it had been a number of years prior. I asked her about symptoms of acromegaly, Cushing's hyperprolactinemia, and she denied all of those at the time. Um, I evaluated her and found her ACTH level to be 10, the cortisol level to be, I think the serum cortisol was 14, and pituitary functions were largely normal. I told her that I thought she might have had a tumor and that there may be residual tumor and we should follow her closely. Uh, about a year or two later, she submitted for another MRI and the little lesion that looked like tumor to me had not changed. And then about a year and a half after that, she contacted me and said, I had abdominal bloating and swelling and discomfort. So I went to see my uh, doctor and they put me in the CT scanner and they found that I have an adrenal tumor and they said to contact your endocrinologist and, and get an evaluation. So I had her uh, do a telemedicine visit. She had gained some weight, but didn't look frankly Cushingoid to me. She didn't have any features of uh, pheochromocytoma, and she did have hypertension, but no hypokalemia. I looked at the MRI, and it appeared that she had a classic adrenal adenoma on the left, no evidence for pheochromocytoma, no evidence for malignancy, and I decided to do a, a minimal workup. Her plasma renin was normal. Her aldosterone was normal. Um, her ACTH was 100, and her cortisol was 25. Overnight dexamethasone suppressed cortisol was 8. I think it illustrates the importance of checking the ACTH, right? If I had just done the dexamethasone suppression test without the ACTH, I would have thought she had a cortisol-producing adenoma of the adrenal gland. But I now have to direct my attention back to the cella, so I scanned her and found that what looked like a little pituitary tumor before had increased in size volumetrically about four times and was now a clear-cut microadenoma that was increasing in size over time. So the way I put this story together is that she probably had a silent corticotrophic adenoma many years ago. Those tumors are known to hemorrhage. They're more likely to have apoplexy. It's probably what happened. She had a little residual tumor that somehow survived that event and didn't necrose at the time of the event. And uh, now has recurrence of tumor with functional hypercortisolism. This is well described. I see a couple cases a year where a patient thought to have a non-functioning tumor or a silent corticotrophadenoma recurs after successful surgery with frank hypercortisolism. And this is probably due to the fact that those cells were more differentiated than the rest of the tumor or something happened and they acquired the ability to secrete a functional hormone molecule uh, or to uh, actually not only produce it and then release it uh, if that was the case that they had a production problem to begin with. So it's, it's very interesting to uh, keep the history in mind, to be suspicious, to follow patients even when you think there might not be a good reason to follow. I mean, how many empty cell patients would you sort of send back to the primary physician and do nothing for, right? So when you see something different, such as an enlarged cella indicating there was a prior tumor, work up for hypopituitarism, work up for hormone excess, and follow the patient over time, and you may be surprised at uh, what, you, what you get uh, to see later on. 
The issue about the adrenal adenoma in this patient is this is probably just a nodular hyperplasia or an incidental non-functioning adrenal nodule in a patient who has a history of Cushing's disease uh, that uh, once uh, uh, was, uh, may, maybe there's some trophic activity of the ACTH in the past. I don't know. It might be an adenoma that has nothing to do with her history of Cushing's disease whatsoever. The goal is going to be to resect her pituitary lesion and reevaluate her biochemistry and then to follow the adrenal lesion over time. Well, that's it for today. I hope that you enjoyed uh, listening to uh, the journey that some of these patients have experienced as a result of their hypercortisolism and Cushing's disease. And I hope you've learned something. Uh, Even if you've learned one thing, hopefully you can apply that to your patients and teach it to others. Uh, It's been uh, great to be involved at Pituitary World News and to have founded this with uh, my co-founder, Jorge Fascinetti. Uh, We do a lot of podcasts for patients and physicians alike, and uh, we're going to start a series of podcasts that I think are more directed towards education of physicians, or at least just sharing cases so that physicians can learn from our experiences and apply that to their practices, but also that so you can you can teach. You can say, hey, I heard about this interesting case, and this is the teaching point, and you can share this information with your colleagues and, and trainees and uh, on your uh, uh, speaking engagements should you have any in the future and need an interesting case to make a point. Uh, so at any rate, thanks for listening. Stay tuned. We'll have more later. There's a lot to share. Uh, Our patients are very interesting, and I appreciate your uh, time and uh, interest and staying tuned. Uh, Once again, Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News. Have a wonderful rest of your day.